WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure, Michigan State's student-run news program here live on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Razel. Now, the school year is almost over here at Michigan State University, and we're feeling pretty festive, which is why our first four uh, interviews tonight are all with festivals here in the Michigan area. We're going to start off the show tonight as we discuss with the director from Tulip Time over in Holland. We'll go over to Boyne City and talk with the director of the National Morel Mushroom Festival. From there, Quinn Hoffman sits down with NASO with their powwow event. From there, we'll go over to Borkilo with their Dandelion Festival. And we'll finish off the show tonight on a more somber note as we discuss with the author of Room 939, 15 Minutes of Horror, 20 Years of Healing, Jenny Lynn Anderson's account on her sexual assault. But first, here is your weekly Impact Update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will return in just a moment, but first, here's your weekly Impact Update. On Sunday, one Kenyan student was killed and over 100 other students were injured on the University of Nairobi's campus. According to an official, an electrical transformer exploded and students mistook the explosion for an attack by Islamic extremists. The explosion occurred around 5 a.m. local time and exploded about four times, which sent the students into panic. Tensions are high in the area after an Islamist attack by al-Shabaab left 148 students dead at a Kenyan college about 10 days prior to the transformer. Some students of the University of Nairobi avoided using the entrances to their hostels, thinking that al-Shabaab militants were occupying them and jumped out of their dormitory windows. The students suffered serious injuries and were taken to the hospital. A male student who jumped from the fifth floor is the only confirmed death at this time. Now we go to Kevin Wick with your national news. While investigating a shooting incident in Troy, Alabama, a video surfaced that exposed a rape incident in Panama City during spring break. According to NBC News, multiple videos now expose the gang rape of a passed-out female student on the beach. Hundreds of bystanders witnessed and did not stop the attack. The two perpetrators, Delante Martisi and Ryan Calhoun, were charged earlier this week and had their bond set. The two Troy University students have since been suspended. With your national news update, I'm Kevin Wick. Next, we have Antriana Meredith with an on-campus cultural recital last week. This past Friday, MSU Asian Pacific American Student Organization held their annual Culture Vogue event at the Lansing Center from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The event showcased cultures from the Asian Pacific region of the world in forms of dance, music, performances, as well as a fashion show. Branches of the APASO organizations such as the Korean Student Association, Philippine American Student Society, Vietnamese Student Association, and the Chinese Student Coalition and many more participated in this event and helped made it a success. APASO ended the night with the Far East Movement as their featured act. With your entertainment news, I am Antriana Meredith. Lastly, we go to Quinn Hoffman with an update on the Pure Michigan Tourism Campaign. Michigan Tourism is looking to be in an upswing. The Pure Michigan Campaign is coming up on its 10th year anniversary in 2016 and has seen its fair share of ups and downs. According to the Lansing State Journal, the campaign has spent $12.4 million on out-of-state advertising last year, 
and is estimated to have made back $1.2 billion in spending and $85.4 million in tax revenue. However, some are still looking to match the spending of other tourist states, like New York and Florida, spending over $60 million in 2014. With your Michigan News, I'm Quinn Hoffman. This has been your weekly Impact Update, and I've been your anchor, Michaela Harris. Now back to Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. You can join the conversation by following us on Twitter and tweeting us at, under, at impact underscore exposure. Once again, that is at impact underscore exposure. We'll be starting off the show tonight with one of our four festive-themed interviews. We sit down with Gwen Awarda, the executive director from Tulip Time, calling in from Holland over on the West Coast in Michigan. Now, I actually grew up in Holland for most of my life. And tulip time was a regular part, you know, for for my regular May summer life. But when I moved here from Michigan State, no one really knew what tulip time was, and that was kind of uh, the catalyst for tonight's interview. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host Daniel Rizal, and I'm here on the phone today with Gwen Aurora, the executive director from the Tulip Time Festival. How are you today, Gwen? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for speaking with us today. No problem. And uh, so you're the executive director over at Tulip Time. Um, and I guess before we, we start diving into the festival, how did you first get involved with Tulip Time? Well, they, there was a, a job opening, and I applied, and here I am. So it's been a really great five years of time that I've spent here at the festival and trying to be innovative and sustainable and plan new and fun events. And uh, have you, did you grow up in Holland, or did you come from elsewhere? I grew up in the Ann Arbor area and came to Holland to go to Hope College many years ago and never left. So I I call Holland my home. I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. Great. Now, uh, yeah, I guess let's start off with, a, a, I guess, a summary of what Tulip Time is all about, and then we can uh, break it down from there. Well, Tulip Time is a festival that happens the first full week of May, and we celebrate tulips, our Dutch heritage, and our community, which is a very diverse community today. And so we have lots of fun activities that happen throughout the week. We have three parades. We have a lot of entertainment that's provided both from the national stage as well as our local art and culture organizations uh, that provide some of the musical entertainment and luncheons and so forth throughout the week. Great. So, yeah, I guess let's start breaking it down. Um... What are some of the main events that go on? I know back when I when I was living in Holland, I was in the Zealand High Marching Band. So I remember the, the parades I have a very fond memory of. Uh, so I know that's one of the main events that we've got going on there. And how, how often are the parades? We have three parades. The first one is on Wednesday called the People's Parade or the um, Gun Lake Casino Volks Parade. We have the JCI Johnson Controls Kinder Parade on Thursday where all the grade school children march and then on saturday is our gmb music parade where we have a lot of our bands both from locally and outside of our area that march along with floats and and a lot of equestrian units and that's a, a fun parade about two and a half miles long about an hour and a half in length and that happens on saturday afternoon of the second weekend mm-hmm. so that would be may 9 and uh, so aside from the, the parades, what other kind of events do you have going on? I know there's some concerts, uh, some special guests even. What I guess what are kind of the things that people can do when they're over in Holland during tulip time? Well, every year we look for just a new and different 
kind of entertainment. And this year we have Dave Mattioli. He was on America's Got Talent. He was a finalist on that show, and he's an illusionist and magician. And he will be here on Tuesday. We have Second City coming from Chicago for a couple nights in the week. And Bob Newhart will be our comedian with a, a show on Friday night, May 8th. So those are some of the things that uh, we have on the purchased entertainment side of things on the national front. And then locally, we have um, the Holland Corral, the Windmill Chorus, the Commons of Evergreen, and our local high school. Um, Holland High School is doing a play this year, the Little Shop of Horrors. So we've got lots of fun things. Depending on the day you're here, you can find something to do for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, I know uh, Holland, of course, has a very strong Dutch heritage. And, uh, you know, how did that come into creating the festival? How long has that been going on for? About 86 years ago, Lyda Rogers, who founded the festival, decided she wanted to beautify the city. And because Holland was settled by Dutch immigrants, and tulips were a flower that was is very prevalent still today and was back then um, in the Netherlands, she said, well, what if we purchased 100,000 tulips from the Netherlands and planted them in town? So you plant the tulips in the fall, they bloom in the spring. So she got the city leaders to do that. And when they bloomed, people came from all over to see the beautiful tulips. From there, the festival has grown to what it is today. Wow. And, uh, you know, when I explain tulip time to people that have never heard of it before, um, I kind of get some, I guess, reactions of them, I guess, criticizing it as a little unusual in some respects. How, how do you feel about uh, some of the outsiders not really understanding what tulip time is about? Well, tulip is really about our community. Tulip time is about our community. So it's after a long, cold winter, which we've had again this year, it's spring comes and everyone wants to get outside. So it's a way for the community to come together. We talk about our Dutch heritage. Um, a lot of people go to Windmill Island and look at the windmill that's there. It's the last working windmill that left the Netherlands, and it's celebrating its 50th year today. Wow. It's a grist a grist mill and it mills flour and you can purchase the flour. So it's an actual working mill. You can purchase the flour there at the Island as well, but we celebrate kind of the history. We go back in time and that's what's unique about this festival is we also have 800 Dutch dancers that dance in authentic costumes that are dating from the early 1900s. And they dance a folk dance, and there's over 50 performances of that on the streets of town um, throughout the eight days of the festival. And that's really unique. It's different. It gives people a glimpse into what the old world Netherlands would have been like. Mm -hmm. And uh, what does it take for someone to become a Dutch dancer? Where do you get most of your dancers from? The dancing program starts in the high schools. And you can dance for three or four years of your high school time. And then you go into what we call the alumni group. And so you can come back and dance every spring once you've danced as a student. There's a number of people. I'm one of them who also said years ago, well, I didn't grow up here, but I'd love to learn the dance. And so we offered a community program, and we still do that for, um, about every other year for people who would like to learn the dance that didn't grow up here. And so we have, again, about 800 people that dance um, throughout the week. Great. Mm -hmm. Good exercise, too. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, earlier you were mentioning the, the introduction of the tulips over 
uh, over in Holland. And I guess today, how many tulips on average are we seeing that are, are blooming each year? There's four and a half million tulips that are planted and bloom in Holland. Wow. And they're, I had no idea it was a, that many. That's incredible. That, that is. There's really a lot. They're planted in a lot of our um, community parks out at Windmill Island, out at some of the tourist attractions that focus on the Dutch heritage and tulips. So four and a half million all around town, and that's a lot of tulips. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, something that I remember growing up at, as a kid over in Holland, uh, there's always this, uh, I guess, a, a legend about some fine, some massive fine that comes with cutting off a tulip. Is that is there any truth to that? Well, there used to be fine. I don't know if there is today. We do ask people not to pick them so that everyone can enjoy their beauty. Of course. If there's anything else that you wanted to add in, otherwise, uh, I'd just like to give a rundown of when tulip time is, uh, and uh, where people can find more information as well. May 2 through 9 is tulip time this year, and we'd love to have anyone come and join us for the day or for a few days. You can find information about programming and when performances are of the Dutch dancing on our website, and that is at tuliptime.com. Great. This has been Gwen Arorda, the executive director from the Tulip Time Festival. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much. All right, have a good day now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can join the conversation by following us and tweeting us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Up next, we take a trip over to Boyne City as we talk over the phone with Executive Director Jim Bauman of the Boyne City Chamber of Commerce, and they're responsible for hosting the National Morel Mushroom Festival that takes place every May. Last year, they actually had a shortage of the morel mushrooms and had to import them from Oregon. But this year, along with some Michigan certification requirements, they'll now have more Michigan mushrooms at their festival. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Dana Rizel, and I'm on the phone today with Jim Bauman, the executive director over at the Boyne Area Chamber of Commerce. How are you today, Jim? Cold. It's cold up here in Boyne City. Oh, down here in uh, East Lansing as well. It's really windy, too. <laughs> Now, uh, I guess let's start off with an introduction a little bit about yourself before we go into the festival. Well, I'm the exec director of the Chamber of Commerce here in Boyne City. Um, you know, it's a great little town. We, we love it uh, four seasons. But, you know, at this time of year, we're kind of ready for the Mushroom Festival and spring to arrive. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, this, is, this is an event that really kicks off our kind of spring and summer visitor season. And, and we're all we're all looking forward to it. We've got a few new things planned for this year's festival, and it's the 55th um, national 55th annual uh, mushroom festival. Wow! And uh, what, when did you first get involved with uh, planning the festival? I've been here for seven years. Um, although I, I lived in in Boyne City um, about 30 years ago, moved away and came back. So um, you know, it was it was. Uh, it was going on when I left and still when I came back. Sure, sure. Now, uh, yeah, I guess let's start with, uh, I guess, a summary about what the festival is all about, and from there we can uh, break it down into some more details. Sure, yeah. It's um, Well, first of all, it's May 14th through 17th, which is a Thursday through Sunday, and it's got a lot of different stuff, kind of something for everyone. I know that's a cliche, but, <clears throat> you know, we've got um, – mushroom hunts. We have the a national championship hunt uh, where we have more than 100 people that go out and 
they pay money to to enter the contest, and uh, the winners get cash. Uh, and we have a guided hunt for uh, people who are just you know kind of novices, and uh -huh. uh, and we have a lot of a lot of foodie type events um, with with um, you know mushrooms. People want people get here and they want they want to eat mushrooms and. So we've got several foodie events that uh, are, you know, enable people to do that, and there's a there's a kind of a morale craft show, there's a amusement rides, um, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of different things, uh, seminar about how to find morels, and um, you know some music in the in our festival tent at, in the evenings, and uh, it's. Uh, there's a lot going on in three or four days. Mm -hmm. And uh, why why mushrooms? I guess why specifically why morels? Is it just kind of part of the heritage in Boyne City? It really is. Uh, the legend is that it started with a couple guys just arguing in a bar, you know, about who could find the most morels. And somebody said, hey, you want to take it outside? And so they, they agreed to, <laughs> to uh, you know, go out the next day and, and, and have a contest and see who could get the most. And that's pretty much how it got started and then you know other events sprang up around it with you know more more things that you know the first time it was just one year or one one uh, day and uh, you know now it's a four-day festival with all kinds of different things yeah and uh, earlier you're mentioning kind of the the foodie aspect of it now can uh, really anyone just join the the competitions uh, for like, the morel dishes or is this something that restaurants do or well, um, yeah, the, there are, and some of them are just events that are planned by the festival committee, but m all the local restaurants have morels, you know, that serve morels, uh, especially, you know, during this, during this time and, and probably for a couple weeks before and after. Um, but we've got a craft beer block party on Thursday with food and, and craft beer on Thursday. Uh, Friday, there's a uh, we call it the wine and dine, which is kind of a gourmet event um, at at uh, uh, the Beach House Restaurant, which is on um, Boyne Mountain property, which is just five miles away, and uh, you get you know wine tasting and morel tasting. And then Saturday is the biggest food event. We probably get 600, 700 people in a, in our big festival tent in downtown Boyne City. Wow! And they. Um, there are 12 different food booths, and you can kind of just pick which one you'd, you'd like to try. And, and the rule is every every one of them has to be has to have morels, and um, uh, that's on Saturday. And then um, Sunday there is is actually kind of taken over by our local Cancer Crusaders group, and they have uh, they have food and music and in the uh, tent. Mm -hmm. Now. Uh, something that interested me when I first heard about the Moral Mushroom Festival, I read an article on uh, the new certification required in Michigan here uh, for mushroom hunters if they want to start selling mushrooms, and it, it mentioned that there was a, a mushroom shortage for the festival one year. Yes, our chamber has been lobbying for this certification process for several years um, because the the health department we would go around and go to all the restaurants and warn them and say you know you can't buy any morels and you can't sell any morels unless they've been picked by a certified picker well how do we get certified well there's no process you know there was absolutely no process so as a result sometimes you know you'd, you'd get more morels from oregon 
than you than you would from the local woods, and it just seems silly to us. Uh, so we've been lobbying to get that changed, and finally um, it, it has been changed. And there's a certification process, and there's three different places where you can get certified, and we just we just think that's terrific. And some of our local restaurants and farmers are um, going to be participating in that because mm -hmm. you know. You, You've got all these mushrooms right in the woods, right around Boyne City, and you've got this, you know, terrific local foods movement that everybody's into, and and you know that you, you're sort of forbidden from, you know, using it. So we're we're happy that's finally happening. So are you expecting to have uh, some more Michigan mushrooms this year? Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yeah. Um, the um, you know, as I said, several there are several restaurants owners that we know of that will be there and um, some farmers that, you know, we have a very strong farmer's market in Boyne City that, <clears throat> that starts in the 1st of May. And uh, so uh, some of the some of the vendors at the farmer's market will be going just so that they can sell that local delicacy um, during the during the festival and, and, and other times. It, you know, it's a they taste so great and they're in such demand. And uh you know, earlier you uh, you mentioned the the mushroom hunting aspect of it. Now, is that uh, who, who's that most popular with? Like, what kind of demographic do you get with the mushroom hunters? Everybody really wants to do. It. And we have had people come to the festivals here just in the few years that I've been here. You know, we've seen people from Greece, uh, South America, Hawaii, um, and you know they they are they just hear about it. We've had a bunch of phone calls. They call us just to find out, you know, what's it all about and where can I stay once I get there. And um, but lots of calls from California, people coming, you know, 2,500 miles to uh, check out the morels. So mm -hmm. it it is it is uh, really a hot a hot item. And uh, and you know we have we have the guided hunt for the novices, and right before that we have a a seminar about how to find morels and that's led by a very uh fun um local guy who who he uh, won our uh championship like five years in a row and so he just sort of said okay i've, I've been there done that and i'm not going to you know keep keep <laughs> knocking down the competition uh -huh. so he you know he does a seminar about how to find morels and and he's uh, he's a, a fun character and uh People, you know, right after that, we have our guided hunt where we have a couple hundred people that pay $15 to get taken out in, into sort of secret mushroom hunting territory mm -hmm. to uh, find morels. Now, do you do mushroom hunting yourself? Yes, I do it in my backyard. Really? I have, I have woods. My, I, I live in the city of Boyne City, but my house and yard back up to uh, a we have a really great 300-acre nature preserve, Avalanche uh, Park, and my house backs up to there, and so I find them right in my backyard. I'm, I, I'm not a great mushroom hunter. I find a <laughs> few every year. Uh, I'm sure if, if our if our morel expert, his name is Tony Williams, if he was if he was there, he'd find plenty of them. But uh, it's uh, it's well worth it. it. It's it's just a lot of fun. You know, gets you out in the woods and. Uh, it, it's, it's really fun when you find them. Uh -huh. Now, I only got a, a couple more questions for you today, um, and one of which is, do you have any, I guess, fond memories of the, the festival? Anything that just really 
stuck out with you over the years? Well, you know, the weather is always unpredictable. That's kind of the, you know, the sticking point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, last year on, we were heading out to the championship hunt, the competitive hunt, and it was snowing. You know, it was it was like in May. 38, 40 degrees, and it warmed up later in the day. But well, you know, when that when that happens, you don't get a lot of mushrooms. The champion last year only got 75 morels. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in some years they've gotten hundreds. Um, so you, you just never know. And then, of course, there was a, what, maybe three or four years ago, I, I'm sure uh, people in downstate remember this too, but we had a very early and warm spring. We had a whole week of like 75 or 80 degree weather. And, and you know, for that week, you know, you could find, find mushrooms early. But then, you know, we always have the festival on the weekend after Mother's Day and we can't move it around and change it just because of the weather. And by the time the festival got here, it was, everything was sort of warm and dry. And uh, again, that year people didn't find a lot, but you know, the ideal conditions are warm weather and damp weather. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can have, have rain followed by a warm day, that's a great day to pick mushrooms. Sure. Now, uh, for our listeners out there who are interested in learning more about the Moral Mushroom Festival over in Boyne City, uh, where can they find more information about uh, really anything about that we discussed today? Well, we've got a good website that lists all of our events, and it, it has um, the the website is morelfest.com. Morel is M-O-R-E-L, of course, and uh, morelfest.com, and that'll tell you all about it and give you ideas for places to eat and. Uh, hotels and that sort of thing as well. Mm -hmm. Now, for uh, <laughs> you know, I I have some friends, of course, who are are picky eaters, and they're not much of a mushroom person, you know. Um, what, to all the picky eaters out there, what would you say to them to get them to come to the mushroom festival? Well, they gotta try it, you know. Uh, I I'm not real fond of other mushrooms myself, but morels are just just incredible. There's mm -hmm. such a delicacy and. Um, when you when you eat them with steak, uh, it's just a really great combination. And uh, you know, and you know, and sometimes the, they you, you can have them mixed with with food like that. Or uh, mu mushroom soup is really popular here, morel soup. Um, so there's lots of different ways you can uh, experience them. Mm -hmm. do, do you have a favorite dish yourself, personally? I I mean I I like it all. I mean I. <laughs> You know, there are some restaurants that serve morels year-round here, and, uh, you know, they, they put them away and freeze them or dry them. And, you know, they put them on a, in a sauce that goes over steak or chicken even. Um, and, you know, I think that's my favorite, sure. favorite way to have them. Well, this has been Jim Bauman here, the executive director at the Boyne Area Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for speaking with me today. Sure. Glad to, glad to be with you. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day now. Great. Will do. All right. Bye-bye. You can join the conversation by following us and tweeting us rather on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Up next, Quinn Hoffman sits down with three students from NASO, the Native African Student Organization, with their upcoming powwow event. Okay, so uh, right now I'm sitting down with uh, a couple of students from NASO to talk about an upcoming powwow. Uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? I'm Diop Harris. I'm a junior uh, public policy major here at State. I'm Ashley Ryersey. Um, I am MSU alumni. 
Um, my name is Dan. I'm a junior student in hospitality business. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, you guys are here to talk about an upcoming powwow. So, what is a powwow? If someone hasn't heard that word before, um, it's a showcase of native culture um, of uh, singing, drum, food, and dance. Um, our all-around culture. Usually, the stuff that you see in TV and in movies. This is what you'll see at a powwow, um, but on a much grander scale. Um. It's about um, sharing culture with um, the community. We um, sell, ven- we have vendors. We sell crafts um, that showcase, you know, Native American art. Um, we also show the spiritual side of Native culture with our dancing and drums and the way we sing. So uh, this this event is probably pretty well known in the uh, Native community, but. Uh, to those who aren't part of this community, uh, you know what 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 can they do here? What are, are they welcome to come watch and uh, explore the culture too? Are they welcome to participate? What's what's going on? Yeah, so this is our thirty uh, second year holding the event um, here on uh, MSU's campus, and it's been open to the public every year, and it's open to the public, so uh, public's welcome to to come to our event. Um, but anyone's able to participate. Uh, being able to come in, actually buy crafts, like authentic uh, native um, beadwork, uh, regalia, um, things of that nature. Um, and it's just an opportunity to learn the culture. Um, uh, and so this this happens every year? Mm-hmm. And this is our 32nd um, annual held at Jenison uh, Fieldhouse. What are some things, uh, I know you said crafts, you said there's um, some, some dance, some music. Uh, what are some of the specific events scheduled for this powwow? Um, we will open at 1030, and there will be about 10 to 15 vendors there selling their crafts so people can shop. Um, then at noon, there's a grand entry, and a grand entry is where all of the dancers will be um, in the powwow. Uh, they, we all go into the arena and start dancing. Um, and then we'll have dance specials, which is kind of a competition for the people who are dancing. And that will go on throughout the day, and we'll, all the vendors will be open all day, too. And where is this being held at again? Jenison Fieldhouse. Um, so you said there's a lot of crafts there. I heard mention like, beadwork. Um, what's, you know, what, what specific kind of crafts are being sold, and, like, uh, you know, what can people look forward to, I guess? Um moccasins are one of the big things uh that you can actually wear outside of uh um outside of the powwow that looks pretty normal um and they're becoming more popular nowadays but uh um native uh medallions that have various uh um designs on them from a Detroit Tigers D to uh to a Spartan head um uh you can also buy uh it's it's so many I can't right, think off right. the top of the head. Um, I know some of the vendors. One of them is selling Petoskey stones. Um, there'll also be um, native like foods, um, fry bread and chili. And I think people are also setting up a booth where they sell like natural, um, organic foods. Um, for some of the people that might be a little. Um intimidated because of their lack of knowledge about these cultures is this a good place to come learn or 
uh, you know, is is there more of a prerequisite of knowing a little bit of culture beforehand? No, this uh, this event is actually tailored to the not so uh, learned in the, in the powwow culture. Um, our programs uh, detail uh, almost every aspect of the powwow, um, from grand entry to uh, the specific dances, the the drum songs. Um, so this is a great opportunity to learn about native culture if you aren't so learned about it and um all of the naso committee will be there so we'd be happy to answer any questions too is there is there a specific like uh region or tribe being represented at this powwow or is it uh multiple at this powwow since we are in michigan it will be a northern style so there's northern and southern style powwows it's a difference in the way that people sing um, so this is a northern powwow, and since it's in Michigan, mostly it'll just draw people from around Michigan. So Michigan has 12 federally recognized tribes. Um, and also, the it's predominantly going to be the three fires. So the Potawatomi tribe, the Chippewa tribe, and the Ottawa tribe, which are um, in Michigan, UP, Wisconsin, and then we'll have some coming from uh, Kansas and Oklahoma. Okay, and uh, you called those the three fires. Mm-hmm. That's uh, just like three of the bigger tribes within Michigan. Yeah, um, you may have heard that term in elementary school, but if you weren't native, it probably didn't stick with you. Right. Um, but yeah, the three fires are the Potawatomi, um, Chippewa, and Ottawa tribes. So this powwow is kind of an amalgam of uh, a, a couple different uh, northern uh, tribe cultures, uh, so that they can all come together and. Uh, Celebrate together, I guess. Yeah. Um, are there any other events that uh, NASO puts on besides these powwows that uh, would be good to know about? Um, in November uh, is actually Native Heritage Month, and we uh, have a few different events throughout November uh, showcasing um, Native culture and uh, Native awareness. Um, and also uh, October 13th, which uh, many people view as uh, Columbus Day is actually Indigenous Peoples Day for us. Um, and we showcase and bring Native awareness to the public eye then. Um, but we also have different uh, um, events and programs planned with the other uh, um, culture groups on campus. So we're, we're, we're around here. <laughs> awesome. Um, also on Friday, the day before powwow, April 17th, is a show put on by ACES, American Indian Student or American Indian Science and Engineering Society, and they are hosting the pre-powwow show on Friday night at 7, and they'll be showcasing the 1491s, who are a Native comedian group. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's basically all I had for you. Are you guys, is there anything else you wanted to get out while you're here? Yeah, uh, the powwow is uh, April 18th, next Saturday, starting uh, from... Um, ten thirty till when the doors close. So, public is welcome to come see our our uh, culture and be a part of this powwow. Awesome. And if uh, maybe is there uh, somewhere they can go? Maybe a Facebook page, a website that they can do to check out for more information. Yeah, we have a, a Facebook event going around. It's called Naso Thirty Second Powwow of Life. If you would like to uh, join that event, go right ahead. Um, and it details all the info on the event there, um, times, locations, 
uh, in more specifics. We also have flyers posted all around campus. Awesome. Killer, guys. Thanks. You can join the conversation by following us or tweeting us at Twitter with our account at impact underscore exposure. We have one more interview tonight that will wrap up our festival theme that we have going on. We've, uh, I sat down on the phone with the festival coordinator for the Dandelion Festival over in Borkula, a small little town just north of Zealand, another small town, which is just east of Holland, which is another small town. But we did interview Holland earlier with the Tulip Time and the Dandelion Festival. another weird plant-themed festival that we got going on. And again, that was with uh, Bev Mashila, who's been coordinating the festival for the past 30 years. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm on the phone today with Bev Mashile, the coordinator from the Dandelion Festival. How about you uh, just go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I'm Bev Mashila. I've um, been a member at Borkill Christian Reformed Church my whole life. And my husband and myself were one of the first ones that were involved on the committee to start the Borkillo um, Dandelion Committee put on by the Borchillo Church. Um, first, it was done through Bowles Restaurant. When they quit, then the church took it over, and that's when we started. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I guess before we start talking about the, the festival, how would you describe Borchillo to people who aren't familiar with it? Oh, we're just um, a small little burg north of Zeeland. Um, we have one church. We have a fire station, an ice cream shop, and a little general store. Um, and we're a crossroads. That's it. So it's really, really just a, a small town America town, really, then? Smaller than small. Smaller than small. All right. So uh, how long has the, the festival been going on in Borkula? Well, this is the 30th year. Um, but the church has only been doing it. This is our 14th year. Mm-hmm. Before that, it was it was done on a small scale. It was just a parade, and Vern Bull, who owned the Bull's Borchill Restaurant, uh, was the founder of it. Mm-hmm. And it was just the parade, and they did old things like the longest dandelion contest and small things like that. And then when the church took it over, we made it more of a festival where it, we have games and food and things like that in the church parking lot starts on Friday night with the school getting involved. They do a um, chicken barbecue. And that's, you know, people pay for a ticket and it's put on um, as a fundraiser for the school. And Borchill School is one of the things that we have associated with the church. Mm-hmm. It's a Christian school, kindergarten through eighth. Uh, preschool now through eighth. And then we have um, Saturday morning, we start with the youth group doing pancake breakfast. And that's all by donation. And then all the games for children, preschool through probably junior high, um, start at nine o'clock in the morning and go till two. The parade starts at 11. And as soon as the parade is done, then the hot dogs and ice cream start. So that takes our day. 
Uh, do you have any, I guess, like parades that go on? Like really any, I guess, more the like parade? larger scale events? The parade has gotten a lot larger. Um, it takes about an hour for the parade to run. It starts at 11, and it's usually done right around 12. And that's about as long as we dare to keep the road closed because that will close down both 96th Avenue going north and south and Port Sheldon going east and west. So it, it does really hamper traffic. The police are really cooperative with us to close all the roads down. So an hour is about as long as we dare to have the parade. Uh-huh. There's probably about 70 entries. Wow. And uh, what, what kind of entries? Are we talking marching bands or floats <laughs> or what, what are we seeing? We have one marching band. Borkville Christian School gets the, the front and center for the marching band because where else do you have an elementary band that gets to have <laughs> you know, a primary place in the parade? So they always have that. Um, the church will have a float in there. The school will have a preschool float. Um, there's always kids riding their bikes, you know, that are decorated. Every parade has to have that. One thing that we have that most don't have is we have a lot of antique tractors and antique cars. Because mm-hmm. people that don't get a chance to show off their antique tractors, and they put a lot of work in them. Uh-huh. We have a lot of them. Uh, we always have um, one person that comes out with their race cars and shows them off. Um, Bill Deer Racing's been coming for years. Every, I think every year. They've never missed a year. So, And they always show up. Mm-hmm. So they register ahead. They um, sign a release, you know, that says that they're going to be responsible for whatever's in the parade. So we, we try to do it as as well as we can for being a small town. Mm-hmm. And for for the festival, are you seeing people coming from really, you know, all, all around in the area, or is it more just for the, the Borculoa citizens that really participate? Well, we started that we wanted to really do it as an outreach to the community. Um, it, it, is, it is a great outreach, you know, to the people that live right around there, that they feel comfortable being on the church grounds. We wanted people to feel comfortable with us. So when they send their kids to vacation Bible school um, every June, then they would they would already kind of know us. So that's how we started it, as an outreach to the community, get the kids to come to Bible school. Mm-hmm. Well, then it got a little bigger and a little bigger and. Pretty soon we weren't advertising anymore because the numbers were getting so we, there wasn't even a place to park cars around Borkville. You know, they were parked all over the road, <laughs> up and down. If you have 3,000 people in the churchyard, you're, you're overpacked. You know, you're pretty full. Mm. And we run that kind of number every year. Wow. Um, they, we've had people come. We've had people from Lansing drive out. <laughs> uh, we've, they've come from all over. Wow. One that's... year we kept track of where people came from, and it was amazing. So we don't do any advertising except, you know, just a few posters around church and at a few businesses around Portillo and Zeal and mm-hmm. just little bits like that. Yeah. And uh, so how, how many people live in Borkillo, roughly? Oh, I don't know. 
That's a good question. I really don't know because I don't know where you would stop and start. Right. Um, and I really couldn't tell you that. Okay. Yeah. Understandable. Um, now, I guess the the question that's really burning for me is, uh, how did this all get started? Who who decided to make a whole festival around dandelions? <laughs> like, I guess I I, I, I guess think I, I'm <laughs> going to blame my husband for that. Um, when when bulls, you know, announced they were going to be closing, and we knew the the parade was going to be done, then we were already on the local evangelism committee, and. He had this idea that, yeah, I think the church could take it over. I think there could be a place, you know, for outreach here. And he started talking it, and before you know it, I had a job. (laughs) Because he thought about it, and our son-in-law was one of the interim pastors at the time. And, yeah, he could see the vision. The two guys would talk it over, and before you know it, I've been working on it ever since. Really? Our son-in-law has long since taken other churches and graduated from seminary, and he's moved on. My husband still helps with the parade, but he doesn't do a lot of the planning and the paperwork. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started, all as a, a brain child at a local evangelism meeting. Really? Huh. But the council has been behind it, the church council, um... They fund it for us every year. Last year we talked, okay, is this something we want to keep going with? Because it's cost the church a lot of money over 14 years. Mm-hmm. And they said, yes. You know, it. You can join the conversation by following us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Now, just a quick note about that last interview. I first heard about the Dandelion Festival through a couple of friends that lived in the area, and I thought they were just making a, a mockery, to be completely honest, of Tulip Time, where I lived over in Holland, and I did not believe them. I honestly thought the festival didn't even exist until a couple of days ago when I interviewed Miss Bev Mashila, one of the coordinators for that festival. Up next, we are going to have our last interview for the night. Jenny Lynn Anderson, she's the author of Room 939, 15 Minutes of Horror, 20 Years of Healing. She goes to her account on her sexual assault in the past and explores the options that students can take now at universities in order to prevent sexual assault and what they can do for their healing. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Raisel, and I'm here today with uh, Jenny Lynn Anderson calling in from Georgia. How are you today, Jenny? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on today. Well, thanks for speaking with me today. Now, I I guess let's start off with a little bit of an introduction about yourself and, uh, yeah, just a little bit about you before we we dive into your book. Okay. Well, um, I'm an author of a book. It's Room 939, 15 Minutes of Horror, 20 Years of Healing. And I'm also uh, a speaker and trainer, and I do travel to uh, university campuses and train about uh, trying to prevent sexual assault. So uh, in your book, again, uh, Room 939, 15 Minutes of Horror, uh, 20 Years of Healing, uh, so you survived a sexual assault when you were on a business trip, and uh, I guess could you share uh, that account with us? Sure. Um, I was 27 years old, and I was PR director for a hospital, and I was traveling to a business conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and was actually staying in a downtown Atlanta hotel and um, was on my way out of my room, which was room 939, and was heading to the elevator to uh, meet a a trade magazine editor in the lobby. 
And um, I was captured in the hallway by a man. I uh, had a knife. Uh, he forced me back into the hotel room where he ended up robbing me and sexually assaulting me. And, you know, I did uh, very fortunately get out of the room alive, and uh, un unfortunately he, he was never captured. And so it was just, um, you know, really, really, really traumatic experience, which it would be for, for anyone. And uh, my book sort of covers, you know, what a woman goes through with such a traumatic event and, and then how do you heal, you know, how do you, how do you find recovery after something like this occurs in your life. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, in the moment, what, what did you do to fight off the intruder? Well, uh, initially out in the hallway, I actually fought him. I, I did try to fight him, but I not, you know, being armed or anything with anything. He had the knife, so that, you know, quickly, um, you know, evaporated the chances of my getting away from him. But inside the room, I ended up tricking him into believing that my marketing director was coming to the room to get me for that business meeting. And so I, I actually just used persuasion, and um, I persuaded him to believe that someone was coming to the door. And he got hesitant, and he ended up getting off the bed, went to the door to just, you know, look ever so slightly out in the hallway to see if anybody was coming. And that's when my eyes locked on the eyes of a housekeeper. And there was a housekeeper out in the hallway. And when I saw her through that little tiny peek in the door, I just, you know, started screaming, he's raping me, he's going to kill me. And uh, that's when the man fled. Mm -hmm. Wow, incredible. And uh, now in the years following the attack, what, you know, what brought you to the point where you were comfortable in sharing your story with others? What, what kind of healing did you have to go through? Well, for years and years, I did not share this um, at all. Um, I, I had a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. I had a great deal of anxiety for 20 years. And it was at the 20-year mark that I knew that my post-traumatic stress was not getting any better. In fact, it was getting worse. And I was still having some night terrors. And um, my husband would, you know, wake me up in the middle of the night and I would, you know, still be having anxiety disorders and such. So I just, um, you know, a few years ago, this has been about five years ago that I just finally decided to seek uh, professional help. I went and got uh, hired a psychologist to work with me and started doing some cognitive behavioral therapy and ended up during that same time writing my book and, you know, just sort of finally releasing the story and what I had been through all these years was, um, was so cathartic cathartic for me and it's allowed me to you know just continue to share it in a lot of different circumstances and situations especially on campuses where I like to speak because I really like to empower women to know what you know just to know the truth that this can occur and we need to just be aware that it is happening quite a bit um it, it happens a lot in our society but unfortunately it, help, it does happen a, a, a lot on college campuses as well mm -hmm. and uh, on on that note um i know here at michigan state we've uh, had the it's on us campaign which of course has been a whole nationwide measure uh, and I, I guess I'd like to get your thoughts on the program. Do you feel like that is the most effective way to, to combat sexual assault on campus? I do think so. I really think that It's On Us program is, is going to help. Um, you know, we've got to arm you guys with the correct information. 
And and basically my thought has been that, you know, we've got to have a different conversation to end campus rape and to end, you know, violence against women. And a lot of the conversation has to do with, you know, um, girls and guys, and we've got to educate, you know, your population there at your school and other colleges that sexual assault is a really a violent crime. It's not about sex, you know. These uh, young men today, you've seen it all in the news, these young students who end up not having consent, and then, you know, the girl will say that, that this person assaulted them, and there's often alcohol involved. And, but the young men today really have to know that what, what's happening, there's so many new legal implications and long-lasting consequences that will happen if, if they don't get this message and the message is that you know our society views this as a violent crime and you can't go out and have sex with girls without consent because if you do so it will be called sexual assault and I I, I don't know how you feel about that but I think a lot of young men just don't really see the long-term consequences of this and they don't really understand that quite yet mm-hmm. and uh and again on, on that note uh when parents are sending their kids off to college to both, you know, both their, the young men and one, young women that are going off to college, what, how should they be, uh, be preparing them, I guess, for this, uh, the sexual assault culture that happens on campuses? You know, what I would say is that if you've got a daughter who's going to college, that they definitely need to realize that, that, that their freshman year, I don't know if you knew this, but like more than 50% of college sexual assaults occur in either August, September, October, and November of the freshman year of a girl's life in college, and it's called the red zone. And most parents, you know, are really not aware of that, but I think that they just have to, parents really need to have conversations about, you know, the, the whole issue with um, alcohol and how alcohol can lead to consent confusion, you know, and they, they need to be having these real conversations about how to be a, a active bystander when they're there in college. I mean, all of you as college students need to be each other's keepers. You've got to watch after each other, and you've got to be, um, you know, you've got to be active bystanders. And that is uh, just like, you know, like Mothers Against Drunk Drivers years ago. Remember when they did the mm-hmm. new um, the program in which they taught us all how to have the designated drivers well here in this population your culture y'all got to learn to have designated mothers you know somebody who's going to look after each other if girls are out drinking and if somebody gets intoxicated and if they lose control they're not going to you know if you lose control and you're impaired you're not going to know if you're sexually if you're being sexually active with someone and sexual assault might could occur so it's not it's it's got to be both you know young women and young men being empowered with the right information. Mm-hmm. Now uh, where where do campus officials stand here? What what's their role in preventing sexual assault? Campus officials, you know, across the nation, um, there there are many disciplinary committees on college campuses that that are often charged with this. And it's very difficult for them. And that's where a lot of the training, sensitivity training, is happening right now. Because it's, um, it, it takes a lot for those disciplinary committees to, to make the right 
choices and to make the right decisions that will impact their student body. Um, I think, of course, law enforcement should always be involved in this. Um, law enforcement officers are typically um, have more sensitivity training than, say, a disciplinary committee might have. And so I would say for, for college campuses to do their best work, for these university officials to do their best work, would be to get more and more and more training so that they can deal wisely and uh, judiciously with these students who, who get involved with, um, with sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Now, when, a, when the law enforcement or any other authorities are investigating into these cases, uh, are there really any other alternatives uh, as, as far as a, you know, working with the victim that wouldn't cause any sort of traumatization to come back again? Um, you know, I think that um, law enforcement will get involved. And, you know, we want to encourage girls to report because if there is somebody out there who is a, vile, who is a habitual offender who's going to do it over and over again and, and maybe sexually assault someone else, that's one message I have for young women is that even though it's hard to do, it's vitally important to report to law enforcement. And then, of course, you know, you've got others involved. You've got your counseling staff often at the university campuses who can help these girls initially. You've also got many times in communities, there's rape crisis centers, um, you know, com community support groups that are also taking place depending on the size of the town or city. And so, you know, the, the sensitivity, uh, of course, the counselors would have that training necessary. But it, it definitely can occur sometimes with re-victimization. And, and, you know, that's what we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do anything to make these girls feel like, oh, well, it's, it, they already often feel like it's their fault, but we as a society don't need to make them feel like that they were the ones who, who made this happen. You know, it's, it's, um, it's terrible when we make girls feel like we make them feel even more degraded, um, you know, because of they're, they're worried about what people are saying about them and such. And so mm -hmm. we have to just be careful not to re-victimize them. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we're just about uh, out of time here, unfortunately, but uh, you are just mentioning, I guess, your, your, men uh, your message to young women out there. And uh, I guess if you could say something, really, really anything to all the victims out there who are currently going through the aftermath of an assault, what, what would it be? What would be your message to them? I think my message would be this. Don't wait as long as I did to seek counseling and to seek help. And I would say remaining silent will only make your tragedy last longer. And I think that in, able, in, in order for you to break the silence, it allows you to finally start the healing journey. And it's really the only way you can totally heal up is, is, to, is to seek counseling, get help, and open up. Mm -hmm. Well, Jenny Lynn Anderson, the author here of Room 939, 15 Minutes of Horror, 20 Years of Healing, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. All episodes of Exposure can be found online at impact89fm.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at impact underscore exposure. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. 
You've been listening to Exposure, Michigan State student-run news program here on WDBM East Lansing with your host, Daniel Rizal. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.